pray, and then we'll get into the next stage in the life of David today. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you that you have made us so happy in Jesus, that we can look to the cross and we can look to the empty tomb and we can see that our faith is sure, that our hope is certain because it's fixed on you. Lord, help us today to cling more tightly to the cross, to cherish Jesus even more. Help us today as we look into the life of David to see all that it is that you have for us, that we would uh, make application by your Spirit's power to our lives and grow in our knowledge, our faith, our love for you. God, we ask together that though I am a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that you would make your word clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in the life of David in 1 Samuel, we've seen him starting all the way back in chapters 15, 16, 17. We saw him go from being this relatively unknown shepherd boy to being revealed to be a great musician, a very skilled musician. He grew into a military commander, someone who was very successful on the battlefield. And then he was marked as the king's enemy. King Saul hated David for all of these great qualities. He hated him and was threatened by him. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is a man on the run. God's chosen king has been on the run and fear for his life. But today we get to the point in his life where he will take the throne. We finally get to the, the point in the story where these prophecies about David come to fruition, where he will be king over Israel. But I want to catch you up because if you remember, last week we were in 1 Samuel 25, and this week we're starting in 1 Samuel 31. And there's a lot that's happened in the past few chapters. So this is a high-level overview of many events. We're really fast-forwarding through history here. But we had this amazing event where David spares Saul's life again. If you remember, David has done this a couple of times where he was in the cave with Saul, close enough to snip off part of his robe and did not kill him, even though Saul wanted to kill him. Well, he spared Saul again, and it's a story that involved a, a water jug and a spear. It's a very interesting story. We had this very unique account where King Saul goes to a witch, and she brings up the spirit of Samuel from the grave, and they interact with Samuel. That's weird. Uh, reading through that passage, it's like, well, I'm glad this isn't a Life of Samuel series, so we can kind of jump past that one for now and uh, one day go back to that, because that's a, a very unique and interesting story. And we see David just continually on the run. In fact, uh, if you were to read through these chapters, which I encourage you to do, if you were to read through, you would see that David actually found safety in enemy territory. He went to the land of the Philistines and hung out there to be safe, which is very strange when you consider his rise to prominence was by killing a Philistine, Goliath. David is on the run. And as he was on the run, and even in enemy territory, his military conquests continued. He kept having more and more success as a military leader with his 600 men. He had a faithful 600 men with their families who followed him around, and his influence and his effectiveness really was impossible to ignore at that time. It was quite clear that David was God's chosen one. Well, at this point in the story, as we get to 1 Samuel 31, we find out about the death of Saul. And so let's look together at 1 Samuel 31, starting in verse 1, reading through the first seven verses of the chapter. It says, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That happened a lot back then. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. 
When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Well, this is a very ugly scene for Israel, isn't it? We want to make sure at this point that we register in our brains that this is the true account of the death of Saul. This is the accurate report of how Saul died. He was wounded in battle, and he fell on his own sword. His sons died with him, a couple of them, and many other warriors. Very ugly, very tragic, terribly bloody scene for Israel. But for David, aside from everything else, for David, this means that Saul's terror against him has finally come to an end. Something that has been the theme of this sermon series, week after week, that King Saul was after David. Well, that has now come to an end. It's really a climax in the David and Saul story, that that story that kind of functions as a subset in David's life. His life was changed instantly, even though he wasn't there to witness this, even though he wasn't around his Israelites, his fellow Israelites at that time, his life certainly changed instantly. Of course, his biggest foe was gone, but also his best friend was gone, Jonathan. He lost them both on the same day in that same battle. And this really is a climax in the narrative. If you're familiar with dramatic arcs and how stories are written, it goes something like this. Let's put that image up on the screen of having the beginning storytelling with an incident that starts the rising action leading up to the climax which is followed by falling action and a resolution and the denouement. Very, very fancy word there at the end. It's French, I think, is what they tell me. And so it should be the denouement. But I'm from Missouri, so I'll pronounce it however I want. And if you've ever watched an episode of, say, Paw Patrol with your kids, they squeeze this into every 10 to 15 minute episode. There's always an incident, rising action, climax, falling action, and resolution. Well, in David's life with Saul, this has been going on. And so if we go to the next image, we can see how I've inserted some of the specific events from David's life into the ark, where you have this inciting incident that causes the conflict, which was Saul turning against David. That really set the stage for the rest of 1 Samuel. This was the contention that kicked off David being on the run, the rising action full of all kinds of crazy events that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And now we reach the climax of the story where Saul dies. It's not the end of the story, but it's the climax of the story. And you have in the next few chapters, as we get into 2 Samuel, some more opposition that Saul's people have against David, and that begins to wane and and fizzle out. And then finally, as the resolution, which we'll get to today, David becomes king. And that really starts a new chapter, a new story in David's life. So I want you to see this storytelling in the Bible because God created us for this kind of narrative. This is a creation of God. This is how we've been telling stories ever since we've existed. This is how the story goes. And we've reached the climax in 1 Samuel 31 where Saul dies. Now, if we go to 2 Samuel, we continue talking about the death of Saul, this climactic moment in the narrative. And what we see in 2 Samuel, verse verse 1 of chapter 1, is David finds out about Saul's death. But he finds out through a bad actor. So let me read the first 10 verses of 2 Samuel 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man told, who told him said, 
by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, here I am. He said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Well, this is an interesting scenario. If you're just observing the details of the story, you may notice that this man is an Amalekite. And you may have noticed back in verse 1 that David had just returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. So you can imagine the relationship dynamic that exists here. And you can imagine how this Amalekite may want to be friendly toward David and spare his own life by calling him my Lord and so on. He thought he would win David's favor by telling him this story. And we'll pick that back up here in a moment. But first, I want us to consider David's response. David just found out, whether he knew this was a lie or not from the Amalekite, David just found out that Saul, his biggest enemy, had died, as well as Jonathan, his best friend. And his response to both Jonathan and Saul dying was one of mourning, one of sadness, one of reverence and respect. And you can imagine, perhaps he would have acted that way toward Jonathan, because he and Jonathan got along. Jonathan had helped him in life. But would he really act that way in response to hearing of Saul's death? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It was reported uh, some 80 years ago or so now, when FDR died and Hitler got news that FDR had passed away, that he celebrated. He clapped his hands, he threw back his head, and he laughed, and he said, I knew it, I knew something would happen to him. Perhaps you would think David might respond that way when he heard of King Saul's death. Perhaps you, in your heart, would react that way if you heard that your enemy died. But that was not David's response. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Why isn't David celebrating? Why isn't this an occasion for cheesecake, you might ask? Why is it a time for mourning? Well, there are a few reasons for that, I think, in David's life. If you remember last week when he met Abigail... Abigail taught him a very important lesson about putting down the sword where possible uh, with those who you have interpersonal conflict with. The answer isn't to go storm Nabal's property and kill everybody. David, I don't think, saw that as a solution anymore to his interpersonal conflict with Saul. He, of course, is mourning the murder of a fellow countryman, even the king. And deeper than all of that, we see all throughout David's relationship with Saul that he respected the office of Saul. He respected the king of Israel. And he never wanted to see the king slain. You could say that David desired repentance for Saul more than destruction. A very healthy perspective for us to have. Those enemies that we might consider that we have in life, whether they're our neighbors across the fence or whether they're our political enemies who are at Washington. Whatever the case may be, it's good to desire repentance rather than destruction for those with whom we have conflict. And again, it's uncertain if David understood that this was a lie that the Amalekite was telling, that he came and he finished off Saul. It's hard to know if David understood all of that at that time. But in any case, David, as was his MO, was sensitive about respecting the authority established by God, and that included King Saul. Well, this Amalekite didn't get off with the life. We pick it back up in verse 13. Look at this swift justice that attends him. It says in verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
And David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He was punished for the sin that David refused to participate in. David had chances to touch the Lord's anointed, to strike the Lord's anointed, and he refused. And this Amalekite, by his own words, incriminated himself and received the death penalty. Well, David, of course, had a musical instinct, and he knew that there was a lesson to be taught in Israel in response to all of this. Continue reading. Look at verse 17. It says, right after this, David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So let's just pause right there. David went to song. This is expected. We know David was into music. He was very skilled in music. But it says in verse 18 that this song would be used to teach, that through this, the sons of Judah would learn. And this has been God's design back then and even now. It says in Colossians chapter 3 that we instruct one another in the local church through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing a song like, come Christians, join to sing, aren't we instructing one another? Aren't we giving ourselves the reasons why we sing and telling each other why we sing? There's something to be learned in in the songs that we sing. In fact, if there's nothing to learn in the songs that we're singing, we should stop singing them, you could say. We don't want to sing hollow, empty, shallow words. So he says, this is something for them to learn from. And if we drop down to verse 23, we We read the second half of the song. It says, Saul and Jonathan beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. If you've wondered where that phrase has come from, how the mighty have fallen, well, there you go. It comes from Scripture. But notice how David continues to respect them even in their death. He continues to revere Saul. He continues to see the authority established by God and respect that role even after he's gone. Very important lesson that we can all learn from that. And he says, teach this to the sons of Judah. Well, just like that, this part of David's life is now over. That was pretty quick. We just breezed through that, the death of Saul. But that really changes David's life. Should he go take his throne now? Should he go Simple as that, sit on the throne and say, here I am, God's chosen king. Well, God rarely makes things that straightforward in our lives. I don't know if you realize that. But God will bring us right up to something and we think, okay, here we go and it's time to wait some more. And that's exactly what happens in David's life. There are lessons for David still to learn, particularly patience. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2. David gets anointed a second time. 2 Samuel chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, 
and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Well, this is a bittersweet moment for this 30-year-old young man. A very important time in his life. It's bitter because, of course, Saul and Jonathan have died. They were slain by the sword. It's also bitter because you only have one twelfth of the tribes of Israel involved here. Perhaps you picked up on that. We're just talking about Judah. He only has part of Israel on his side. And we'll read more about the others here in just a moment. But consider what we just read, starting in verse 1. After all of this, what did David do? It says in verse 1, he inquired of the Lord. He prayed. He prayed. Now, sadly, this is something you don't see much in the pages of Scripture. You just read and it says, he went out and did this, that guy went out and did that, she went out and did that thing. And very rarely does it make note of that person stopped to pray. And I wonder if that's because those people were rarely stopping to pray. And if we were to reflect on our own lives, I know I'd be just as guilty as the next of not holding to that great phrase. I love the phrase, but it's really hard to live. First we pray. It's a really, really good phrase, a good motto to have in life, but difficult to live. Well, David first inquires of the Lord, and God tells him to go to Hebron. This is a place in Judah that's not very flashy. However, it has great historical significance. If you were reading through the book of Genesis, for example, you would find out that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives were all buried at Hebron. And so it's a very significant place historically speaking. And think of the picture here as they're going to Hebron, because it's not just David's family, but it says in verse 3 that it was all the men who were with him, 600 men. Think of the wives and the children and the dogs and the cats and everything else that would be marching their way to Hebron. And, and think of how the dynamic would change in that place. It would be a different place. Hebron lied about 20 miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. And surely that area was different when David and his companions arrived. And surely this was yet another test for David as the years went on. We're about to read that it took seven and a half years before David became king over all Israel. And we can easily forget that when we think of our Bible timeline. You think first king of Israel, Saul. Next king of Israel, David. Insert in your mind, see if you can burn it into your memory, seven and a half year gap. You have Judah pretty instantly welcomes David, but not the rest. And seven and a half years is a long time. It's not a lot on the Bible timeline, but think of how long seven years is in your life. If you had in your mind that God is taking you here to do this thing, and then you realize seven and a half years, it's a long time. I think Jacob knew something about seven years, didn't he, with Leah, and then he knew about seven years again with Rachel. Well, here David is learning how long seven and a half years is. And it's surely a sweet moment with Judah, but it's far from unity in Israel. It says that the men of Judah, it says in verse 4, the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So this is the second time David is being anointed in his life. The first time was when he was still at his pop's house and he was the shepherd boy and Samuel came. The second time is right here where he is king over specifically the house of Judah. The first signs of a divided kingdom in Israel we're seeing right here. As you know, the rest of the Old Testament goes on to talk about the kingdom of Israel and of Judah, or the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They, they're called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, we're seeing some of those first fractures right here, not the way that God intended it. And we get some more detail about how bad it was. If you start reading with me at verse 8, it says that Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. 
The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So David begins his reign as king with resistance on day one. What an interesting scenario he finds himself in. And to put it in more modern terms, it would be like being hired as the CEO of a company. And then you go to your first board of directors meeting and you find out that 11 twelfths of the board of directors have their own CEO. And he's 10 years older than you and he's the son of the last CEO. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? How are you going to win over those people? How are you going to exercise the authority that God has given you? Very, very difficult. It says plainly in verse 10, David just had one tribe. It was the house of Judah that followed David. The other tribes followed Saul's regime that hung on, and it would take time for them to come around under David's authority. So hurry up and wait is really the message here. It's so frustrating to us, isn't it? Hurry up and wait. But how often is this God's program to hurry up and wait? Think of Jesus starting his earthly ministry when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how long have we been waiting for the total fruition of that kingdom? Hurry up and wait. God's program is built that way. God's program is built to teach patience to His people. God's program is about testing us. This would certainly be a time of testing in David's life. It'll be a time of testing in our lives when He has us hurry up and wait. And it's also time where the wicked fills up their sin, where the wicked entrap themselves, ensnare themselves in their own schemes. And God's judgment is perfectly timed, and it's perfectly just when it arrives. Hurry up and wait. Well, as we look at David's life, this morning we don't have to wait because we can just turn the page. So let's go to chapter 5 and jump forward seven and a half years. 2 Samuel chapter 5, the last passage in the Samuels that I want to read today where we see that David eventually becomes king over all Israel. Again, this was a long process, over seven years, but now we arrive. Next week, we'll we'll get into some of these in-between chapters and look at these events with these interesting people and how David interacted with them. But for now, let's jump forward through all that and see David becoming king over all Israel. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, that same city, and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So David here is anointed a third time, but this time by all Israel. This time, it's the the resolution really comes together where all the tribes of Israel recognize that he is God's choice for them. And for the next 33 years... David reigns as king in Israel. Now, as with Saul's death and the conflict he had with Saul, this success that we're reading about now came through these previous chapters with people killing his enemies. We find out that those who were opposed to him get killed, and that was not David's desire. It never really was for his success to be largely due to others killing his enemies. And he did not reward those who killed his enemies. We can see that David did not honor that, but this was the way that God allowed it. This is the way that God put it all together. And now, finally, in Israel's history, David is king. Let's keep reading, picking up at verse 6. It says, Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking, David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, 
though the, through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come up into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had, had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Quite the culmination of things there. Well, if we bump back up to verse 6, what we just read, David made a political move concerning the capital of Israel. He decided to make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Before this point, Jerusalem wasn't as prominent as we now know it to be. When you hear the word Jerusalem, when you hear of the city Jerusalem, pretty instantly in your mind you think about the great significance that it has in the Bible. You think about the significance it will have in the future as God has talked about what will happen in Jerusalem. But at this time, the Israelites didn't even dwell in Jerusalem. It says again in verse 6 that this was the land of the Jebusites. They were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So David chooses this place to be the capital, and it seems as though he does so because it was fresh territory. He wasn't going to make Hebron the capital because then the other tribes would say he's showing favoritism toward Judah. Instead, he picks this fresh territory that wasn't even indwelt by the Israelites. It was a land that they didn't think he could take. They even said, the blind and the lame can turn you away there. Israel had tried to take Jerusalem, and it hadn't worked. It was this fortified city with strong defenses. The people who lived there had an advantage over those who would come and attack to where you could even joke around and say, yeah, the, the blind are going to ward you off. And David says, nah, we're going to do it anyway. And because God was with him, he had great success. Now, one of the things that's, that's really interesting about this time in Israel's history is that we can go to other places in the Bible and see similar accounts. It's a lot like the Gospels in that way, where you can read about it in Matthew, and then you can go to Luke and see the same story from a different angle. We can do that here as well. And so I want to read from 1 Chronicles 11, starting in verse 4, because I think this is a fascinating uh, different angle on the same story where we get more information. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, starting in verse 4, it says, David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus. So you see right here, it wasn't even called Jerusalem back then. It was named after the people, the Jebusites. It was a town called Jebus or Jebus, however they would have pronounced it. And the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Now, that's a pretty cool thing to throw out there, right? Uh, they were all hesitant. Should we go? Should we not go? And he says, well, this, this will motivate them. First one to kill a Jebusite, you get to be in charge. All right, let's keep reading. It says, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. He built the city all around, from the millow even to the surrounding area, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. What an amazing scene. I just love getting that additional information, and we're going to read more and more about Joab in the coming weeks. So this is a great place to get introduced to him, that he was a brave warrior in that instance. Well, as we think about that last verse I just read, verse 9, David became greater and greater, for Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, was with him. That's, a, that's an amazing statement when you think about what Israel's been through over the last however many years with Saul. Now they're at the point where their king is God's king, and now they're at the point where this king is being blessed by God because God is with him. That was not the case with Saul, was it? The Holy Spirit would arrive, and then he would leave. And then an evil spirit, a tormenting spirit from the Lord would plague Saul. And Israel would be healthy, and then they would be sick. And they'd be healthy, kind of, and then they'd be really sick. And 
it was just a really turbulent time. But right now, in this moment in Israel's history, they have God's king in charge. And God is with him, blessing the nation. Well, this rulership that David has at this point was really just a foreshadowing of what God will bring about in the future. And so I want to close, or I say close, I want to spend the rest of our time dwelling on just how significant of a role David plays in the kingdom program of God. David has a very, very significant role in God's kingdom program. This isn't it. Even as you read through 2 Samuel and you make it all the way to the death of David as you get into 1 Kings, that's not the end of David's part in God's kingdom program. It's very, very interesting. And so let's start with the high-level view that God's design for His nation, God's design for Israel, always was that they would be in their land, living under His law, and receiving His blessing for their obedience to His law. Well, they utterly failed. If you read through your Old Testament, it's just absolute failure. He, he gave them blessings and cursings, and it all depended on how they did with His law. If they obeyed His law, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed His law, they would be cursed. And to say they disobeyed His law is somewhat of an understatement because they fa- fell even before they had the first step in the race. Now, after Israel utterly failed, you keep reading through your Bible, and after Israel utterly failed, Jesus comes. We get God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He arrives, the one who proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes, and He dies in our place for our sins after demonstrating His perfections by living a perfect life. And He rises from the grave. He lives for 40 days, proving that He is who He said He was, and He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Since that day, He's been building His church. Jesus has been building His church, not with brick and stone, not with wood, not with clay, but with people. Those who believe that Jesus died for them in their place for their sins, those who count on God's grace, those who find their life in the resurrected Christ, and trust in Him completely and alone for salvation. Those are the living stones of His church, the building blocks of God's church. And we are not under the law like Israel, but we're under grace. Aren't we happy for that? Not under law, but under grace. And we are not one nation like Israel, but we are many nations. We're not just one spot on the globe, but We are all over the world because Jesus is building a church out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we see now, as God's people, these saints that He has made us to be, that we have the fullness of God's blessing in Jesus Christ. There's no place else for us to go to get blessing. We have the fullness of God's blessing in the person and work of Jesus, the beloved Son of God. To remind you of that, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where the Apostle Paul wrote, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in Jesus, in the Beloved. How amazing that God has chosen to save us, that God has chosen to redeem us, to call us His saints, to make us holy by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. But what we have to realize now, as I've jumped ahead of David, I've jumped ahead of Israel, we're talking about the church, we have to realize that God's kingdom program does not end here. God's kingdom program in the world doesn't stop here. There's a lot in the Bible that's prophesied about what is to come, and it includes David. David is involved. There's coming a time where Christ will physically reign on the earth. Do you believe that? 
There's coming a time when Jesus is going to reign on the face of the earth. And explicitly, He will be King of kings. He will be Lord of lords. There will be no doubt. In fact, it says in the Bible, He's going to have a rod of iron. He'll keep the nations in line. For once, we'll have a good president. It'll be an amazing day. And leading up to that moment, what Jesus is going to do is call His church out of the world. He's going to save Israel through amazing tribulation, awesome, fearful tribulation, and we are going to return with Christ. It says that all His saints with Him, we're going to return, and He is going to establish His throne over the face of the earth to be explicitly the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, when He establishes this reign, and we find out in Scripture it's a thousand-year reign, when that happens, something really crazy, David will be there. Not only will we be there, but David will be there. And other Old Testament saints will be there. Because there's going to be a resurrection. Just as Christ was resurrected from the grave to walk in newness of life, so too we will be resurrected. One day, you will be found in resurrected glory. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will always be with Him, and that includes in your renewed shell of a body. No more will stuff fall apart. No more will you, will you struggle with sin. You will be in resurrected glory. So like all saints, David will be purged of all of his sin and will be found in a resurrected state. And we find in Scripture that in this future kingdom of Jesus Christ, David will have a prominent role as a prince in the kingdom. So let's close by looking at Ezekiel 34. Turn with me there, if you would, past the book of Psalms. Ezekiel's a pretty big book in the Old Testament, so you can find it after the book of Psalms. Ezekiel 34, and let's start at verse 17. Ezekiel 34, verse 17. It says, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. So we'll just stop there on verse 17. You guys remember any talk in the New Testament about sheep and goats and judgment? Hmm. There's coming a day where there's a judgment between the sheep and the goats. Jesus said He will conduct that judgment. And the sheep will enter by the right, and the goats will be placed on his left. There will be the sheep entering his kingdom out of those saved in Israel, and the goats will be judged. Jesus taught about this in Matthew 24 and 25. Well, this is the Old Testament reference toward that judgment. This happens before the kingdom. And he goes on to say, if you drop down to verse 20 with me, that David will be there. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? That David, the creature king, God's choice of the creatures to be king in Israel, here in the future is going to be installed again by the Lord. It says there in verse 24 again, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Now make no mistake, this is Jesus' kingdom. Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. But David has this special role in that kingdom over Israel. And this seems to be the literal David. If you were to jump forward in Ezekiel, to 45.22, Ezekiel 45.22, it says of David the prince that he's going to make an offering for himself and for the people. It says, on that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. So in this day of a restored kingdom, there will still be these offerings made because 
Creatures have to be ceremoniously cleansed, even in the kingdom, in order to appear before Jesus Christ, King of Kings. This doesn't take their sin away, just like in the Old Testament. It never took their sin away. But it was a ceremony that signified they were less than. They needed to be ceremoniously cleansed before the Lord as they acted that out in faith. And here it says the prince has to make that offering for himself. This prince, to me, seems to be the literal David. And this isn't the only place where we see this. If you were to look at Ezekiel 37, go ahead and turn there with me if you're open to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 37, 24, and look at what it says here. Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28, it says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. What a day that will be. What you're reading about here is the restoration of God's nation, Israel. And there will be some who are uncomfortable with such a thought for whatever, whatever conclusion they've already drawn about theology. And these words don't mean what they mean to such people. David means Jesus. And the sanctuary in the midst of the people also means Jesus. And the land means the whole earth. And Israel means the church, and all the words get redefined. But the way I read it, the way I see it, is that God is going to bring His people through in resurrection, and He's going to establish this nation again. And this nation will be known to all the other nations, it says in verse 28. And this nation will have the sanctuary of the Lord and the prince, the servant of God, David, dwelling in it as Jesus has this global kingdom reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, Israel continued, will continue to have a special function with David as their prince. And it's not just in Ezekiel. It says in Jeremiah 30, verse 9, just the one verse that we'll look at, it says, "...they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them." That's talking about that future kingdom. And again, this is in Hosea, Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince. They're there right now, aren't they? Without sacrifice or sacred pillar and without ephod or household idols. It says in verse 5, though, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord to his goodness in the last days. This is what's going to happen in the last days. And David's role here does not take away from the glory of the king of kings. His, his role doesn't overshadow Jesus' role in the kingdom. Jesus is the one who appoints him. Jesus is the one who installs him. But instead, it shows, it adds to, it amplifies the glory of Christ who is king of kings and lord of lords. And in that day, there will be no doubt that that's the case. It will be a wonderful, wonderful day. David, like the rest of us, will bring glory to Christ in his kingdom in the role that God gives. We will all be there, and it will be great if we believe. How can you know if you will be there with David in that kingdom? How can you know that you will live to see that day, that you will have life in that day, that you will see Jesus ruling from Jerusalem with a rod of iron? How will you know that one day you'll be able to witness with your own eyes peace on earth? Well, it depends on which kingdom you're in now. It starts now. Are you in the kingdom of Christ? Are you a citizen of his kingdom? It says in Colossians chapter 1 that those who have truly believed in Christ have been transferred to his kingdom. You are a kingdom citizen awaiting that day when he rules on the earth. Or have you rejected that kingdom for the world, for Satan, 
It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that in our natural state, we are children of disobedience. We follow the devil. You know, he too has a kingdom. He's given authority on the face of the earth. So you can know for certain that you will be in that future kingdom if you know that now for certain you're a kingdom citizen, that you belong to Jesus. Just as Israel had to choose between David and Saul, so you have a choice here, don't you? Between the son of David or rejecting him for some earthly god, earthly king, even the king of self. Just as after David was anointed in Judah, the house of Judah, the other tribes, the other houses had a choice, didn't they? And they foolishly chose the wrong one. So you too have a choice, don't you? Is it going to be King Jesus or another king? Christ invites you to come into his kingdom of peace and rest and hope and salvation and truth and glory. Isn't that a great invitation? And what you are called to do is to cast all your care on Him, to put the fullness of your trust completely on what He has done for your salvation. You don't bring anything to the table. You don't add to His work. You trust in what He has done alone, and you will be saved. You will be a kingdom citizen. What a day, glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you thankful because of what you have done. You have given us salvation in Christ that extends into eternity future, not just salvation for today or this week or even this life, but you've given us eternal life, eternal salvation. And I ask for those who are here this morning who may not know you, that I ask on their behalf that you would convict them of their sin. By your Spirit's power, bring them to a profession of faith. By grace, bring them to the place where they are born again to a living hope. And God, we ask that you would help us to look at the world through the proper lens that we would choose each day, day by day, to follow you as King, not the world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.